Hey, everybody. It's been a few years since I've been at Sanctuary, so I'm really glad to be back. Um, I always find it a pleasure and a privilege to be back in the town of the world's largest praying hands. <laughs> kind of feel like intercession's always over top of you here. So I'm really grateful for that. What a claim to fame. Um, so I was thinking about uh, this text, and um, I've been sick all week. So I'm, I'm not going to preach the gospel text, but that's all right. Um, there's another text in the gospel that I'm going to preach. But I, 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 did, I did realize that today's baptism Sunday that you go through Epiphany. And I wanted to, I don't know if you have that photo that I just sent up. I just got back from the Galilee a few weeks ago. This was Jordan. And, or the Jordan River. And um, here I am coming out of it, and this is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, um, where we think Jesus was probably um, baptized on the, on the south side, just north of the Dead Sea, because that's where Qumran was, and my contention is that that's where John the Baptist was sort of doing a lot of stuff. So um, this was probably north of where Jesus was baptized in this scene. And what occurred to me, if you've ever read the Didache, it's this old document. It was like the first Christian formation document that we have of like, once you're starting to follow Jesus, like, how do we do that in a way that really um, honors the Son of God and really flows into the stream of the Trinity and be, we become the church as we live into that stream? Um, and the Didache, that book was, that sort of guide was written for that purpose of forming Christians in the way of Jesus. And what it says in it is that when you're baptized, it has all of these like priorities of baptized. Well, if you, if you can't have that, then make sure of this. And if not this, then this. If not this, then this. And one of the things that it did okay is that when you're baptized, it, it wants you to be baptized in running water. And I was baptized in a pool in a Baptist church upstairs, right? That's cool. That's fine. Um, but it said, if, you, if possible, be baptized in running water. A living water is what it really says. And when you step into the Jordan and you're just seeing this water hit you and go beyond, it's this beautiful understanding that though your sins be as scarlet or whatever brokenness or wounds you bring to that moment, they are carried away and gone. And it just gives testimony to the power of God in our lives. And so if nothing else in this Baptism Sunday, may I just say like whatever you came in bringing, like, may this be a, a, a body of living water this morning for us as we gather for worship to say, like, God, whatever I bring, my wounds, my pains, my trauma, may I just surrender it to you. And may you, like the Jordan River, to carry it downstream that it would be out of my sight and gone forever that I would walk in freedom. So um, pray with me as we begin this morning, and uh, I will be brief as possible. God, we love you. We're grateful for life. We're grateful for you. Would this be a a stream of living water in this place today. Holy Spirit, would you be involved in what we're doing? We, we need you. We need your presence. Um, God, we don't need a, another biblical presentation. We need your presence. And so, God, as, um, as we proclaim um, your text, um, would you write it in our hearts? And would we um, authenticate uh, what generation after generation has been saying, and that is the story is true. So may that story find a place in our souls this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, I'll also have it on the screen if you don't have um, your Bible or a phone or some sort of device. And um, I want to begin, as you're turning there, um, with art. There's something about art for me that really captures um, a discipleship sort of mechanism. You know, I, often we, we hear things and it's sort of ethereal and it stays in our minds, but there's something for me I've just very visual in my discipleship. And so um, I've been really meditating, contemplating on this piece 
um, for a few weeks now. It's the most important piece of art I've seen in a while. I don't know who the artist is because I can't find them and I can't find a better resolution. So it's like, I don't even know if this is a good piece of art or not. I don't even know how they measure that. All I know is that it's captured my heart. And this was the highest resolution I could find without getting it all pixelated. And so I've just been staring into this ever since Advent started and leading now into Epiphany. And I think it's the most important piece of art I've seen in a long time. Uh, Toward the end of this teaching, I think that will become clearer and clearer to you as to why I believe that to be so. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, let me just read this first part over us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. I'm going to pick up a little bit where Mark left off last week and continue this extension of this sort of understanding that the Son of God has come. What do we do with that? What does it mean? What does it mean for the power struggles in the world today? What does it mean with the contentious conflict? What does it mean for the incivility? What does it mean for the injustices that we seem that are never finding their way forward and finding hope? What does it mean for us that have lost faith this morning and it just feels like we're barely hanging on? I think this text wants to address that. And I think this piece of art helps to open us up. What I want to suggest this morning in beginning is that this piece for me, when I think about this little underground um, birthing center in Bethlehem, this cave, I think about the words like humility and simplicity. Humility and simplicity. That it's almost as if from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's saying, hey, listen, if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. It's not obvious. The kingdom of God is not obvious. That's the weird thing about this mystery we've been invited to. It's not obvious. I think it's often why our kids see it better than we do. And it's often why the poor are called blessed because they're not holding on to the same illusions that we are. There's a kind of opening, a kind of, a kind of eye that sees the kingdom better than us sort of privileged people, at least most of us, that feel like we have it all together. And, and I think there's something about the very, the very geography in which the Son of God is born into is not obvious to the world that there's the King of Kings. You don't look at that and say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. It confounds us. And then the text continues on. Oh, by the way, like we think about the baptism. When, when, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, what does he say? A little participation. What does he say? What's that? Yeah, he says that. And he's also like, hey, you baptize me, I'm not gonna baptize you. In other words, like even his expectations of what Jesus was going to do, it's, it's disrupted. He doesn't come along and easily complete John's sentences. He actually does things in ways that prophetically fulfilled but weren't the way in which we thought it would fulfill. Even later, John says like, he sends word from prison, are, <laughs> are you the guy? Because it doesn't seem like it to me. Rome seems to still be in charge around here, Right? that Jesus is constantly disrupting whatever assumptions that we make about the kingdom of God. And in that disruption, he doesn't go against the prophetic, sort of, uh, the, the prophetic sort of imagination. He actually fulfills it. But it's always in ways we didn't expect. It's always in ways we wouldn't have completed the sentence. So the text continues with this, and this is what I want to lean into this morning. So you have this idea of as Jesus who was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of Herod. So you talked about Herod a little bit last week as Mark led into that text. During the time of Herod, it's not a throwaway mention, and it's, he's not trying to like fill papyrus here, and it's also not like just placing this in the moment of history, like, okay, it was around that time. Herod the Great, Herod the Great, the political figure, the diplomat, the leader, right? Karl Marx believed that the greatest logic in the universe was economics, 
And then you have Sigmund Freud, which say, it's, it's your instinct. That's what makes the world go round. That's the grammar of the world. And then you have Herod, well before that, who believed the meaning of the universe, it lie in power. That we all sort of bring a frame of where we think meaning is found and where it comes from. Herod was power. And, and I recognize that the ORU praying hands are an architectural wonder, but I want to submit to you that Herod is possibly the greatest builder in human history. In human history. Jesus was not born into a culturally boring political moment. I'll often hear like, why wasn't Jesus born now when we can all like Snapchat and send it across the world, right? Because that wouldn't have fulfilled the ancient prophecy, the prophetic moment. That there's something about this particular moment that history has been moving toward and begins to climax. And I'm gonna show you why I think that is so. That he wasn't born into a boring political cultural moment. He was born into a politically charged frenzy right on time. A prophetic moment if there ever was one. Herod had gained power, first of all, from his father who is an Idumean politician. Let's say that together. Idumean. One more time. Idumean. One more time. Idumean. Hang on to that word. I'm going to come back to it. What it means, first of all, right now is that he's not Jewish blood. He comes from a different place, a place east of where we were. In other words, Herod's ultimate loyalty was to himself. It wasn't as a father over these people as king of Israel. And so to get what he wanted, what he would do is he would straddle Rome and he would straddle the Jews simultaneously. He's an asset to Rome because he marries into a Jewish family. So he becomes half Jewish. So he's an asset to Rome because he can control the Jewish people. He's sort of one of them through marriage. He's not Roman. He's now grafted into the Jewish people, sort of, so he can sort of, for Rome, keep the Jewish people somewhat happy. So he's a bit of a puppet for Rome. Now he's an asset to Jews, why? Because he builds up their society. Remember, they're coming off the Hasmonean dynasty. Before that, they've been oppressed by the Syrians. So they're just a crushed people that are waiting to rebuild their society. So Herod comes along and he's exporting goods and he's creating really great paying jobs for the locals who would build his fortresses and palaces. And he gains wealth in this way. He controls the spice trade route called the Via Maris. It's this road, this ancient road. It means way of the sea. And it comes all the way around the Mediterranean, slices all the way through Israel. So he's controlling that trade route. So if Rome wants to go to Egypt, you got to go through Herod and you better pay your taxes, right? So Herod's gaining wealth through the spice trade route. He's also mining copper in the island of Cyprus. And he becomes the greatest exporter in balsam in the world. And then he starts gaining fame, right? So something's rising again in Israel through this half-Jewish king. And he gains this fame by building. Architecture was how you stamped your greatness in the ancient world. It was through what you built. And Herod was second to none. Even Caesar was impressed. And Cleopatra is jealous of him. And so Herod starts building these fortresses, 11 in total. He builds a new temple for the Jewish people and three palaces that were projects of sheer wonder. Now he starts pleasing the Romans by building up their amphitheaters for their entertainment, right? And he starts building these pagan temples. And he pleases the Jews by building their synagogues and reconstructing their own temple. But make no mistake, they are monuments to himself and to his own greatness. The Jews thought that David was a good king. Herod wanted the Jews to remember him as the great king. 
the Jews thought Solomon's ancient temple was impressive. Herod built a temple that was magnificent. Think about this art piece again. We can already see that humility and simplicity, they're not going to be his virtues. In fact, he's going to chase the opposite to make his kingdom known. Go to that next photo. This is on the, on the coast. There's this port town called Caesarea Maritima. Has anyone been there? It's on the coastline. It's a, it was for, a couple in the back. It's this, um, it was this formerly just wild marsh. No one could build on it. No one had ever settled it because it was just wild marshland, right? And so he comes along and builds it out and lays the whole thing in marble. It was a city port of wonder. And now you got to pay taxes to that on your way down to Egypt. And that really made Cleopatra a bit pissy. It was in an uninhabited wasteland, right? He builds it up beautifully. Today you can still walk it and it is impressive to say the least. Now get this, he didn't like salt water, right? I don't either, I live on Lake Michigan. He didn't like salt water, so what did he do? He built a a freshwater pool in the Mediterranean Sea. You can actually see it right there, the way it's carved out. He builds a freshwater pool in the first century, in the sea. It's insane, this guy. See that amphitheater? There's this amphitheater in the top right of your screen. They say that would have sat 350,000 people, which makes Oklahoma Memorial Stadium feel like a JV squad. It's crazy. Now, you go to the south of here, what you find right on the Dead Sea, basically just, just adjacent to it, you find Masada. Has anyone been to Masada? I mean, Masada is an architectural wonder. He takes this sort of desert mountain, right? And he builds three palaces scaling down. It's insane what he does. And what he he wants to do is have all these fortresses that are available should he need to escape from the Jews or from the Romans, depending on who's angry at him at the time. So he has all of these sort of auxiliary plans in case he needs to like go from one fortress to the next to escape into another part of the world, right? If you've ever climbed this thing, has anyone ever climbed this thing? I mean, you know that sort of snake trail. That thing's a beast, especially in the sweltering, sweltering heat of the summer. Now, it was equipped with pools, with baths. It was equipped with a synagogue and three palaces in the middle of the desert in the first century. And get this, hot tubs, thanks be to God. Cold tubs, tepid tubs. How do you regulate temperature in the first century? Beyond that, how do you even get water in the desert? Well, what do you do? You, you recarve the topography to channel it into your cistern. And then you have people bring it up and fill out your pools. It was insane. They say that a thousand soldiers could be well fed for 10 years on Masada if they needed to hide out. A thousand men for 10 years. Years He imported oil and wine and the best wheat and grains to be at the top of this thing. Imagine just carrying it up. I did well to have a water bottle in hand. I mean, imagine carrying all this stuff up. And there they stored javelins and spears and swords and you name it. This is paradise in the desert. This is Palm Springs before there ever was one. Then we think about Herod's temple. Dwarfs Solomon's temple. Go to that next photo. This thing took 40 years to build. 
He puts 18,000 Jewish people back to work. Not slaves. He gives them a fair wage. He builds what's called, what we call now as Herodian stones. And he builds it three stories deep in the earth. Three stories deep in the earth. Each stone is at least 10 foot high, 10 foot wide, weighing hundreds of tons, almost impossible even with today's technology to move. And even Jesus' disciples, they're impressed. In Mark 13, they come off of leaving the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what magnificent stones, what magnificent buildings. Like, now, that, that guy was great. He's, he's great, the guy that built that thing. If you've ever prayed in the Western Wall, yeah, Herod built that. And you can see how complicated it would be for a Jew here is Herod straddling Rome and Israel, rebuilding temples, putting people back to work. And I wonder if it would have been tempting to think, I wonder if this is actually the Messiah. I wonder if this is the one we've been waiting for. And maybe he's waiting for just enough power and then he'll take Rome for us. You gotta wonder. You gotta wonder how easy, how tempting it would be to wanna hit your wagon. Because Herod was a force. Now, I want to focus our attention this morning on the greatest palace of all, the Herodian. Here's the Herodian. It's a, it was built on top of a volcano, and, um, which seems like a safety hazard. But be that as it may, it was a man-made hill that was his masterpiece. It was his favorite house of Herod the Great, Herod the King of the Jews, Herod the Killer to any threat of his reign. I mean, by the way, up to this point, he's, he's killed his wife, He's killed the high priest, and he's killed three of his sons who are a threat to his reign. I mean, hashtag megalomania. This guy's insane. Uh, in the Herodian, we're talking four towers, seven stories, a bathhouse, a courtyard, a Roman theater, banquet rooms, as well as extravagant living quarters for himself and the guests. Again, a hot tub, a cold tub, a tepid tub. This guy was a baller. I think it's fitting that he builds his greatest house on top of a volcano. I think what he's saying is that my greatness is erupting into the world. Behold, I am Herod the Great. We all still with me? We awake? We good? Okay, I'm about to turn a corner here. Here's this art piece that we began with. Why does this image matter? Why is it so moving? This may be the most relevant piece I've seen in a long time. Here you have a little town of Bethlehem, verse six, but you, Bethlehem, Matthew chapter two, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. I mean, the humility of that, you think about Herod's greatness, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let me ask you this question. What's in the background? It's the Herodian. The Herodian is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, 10 miles east of Bethlehem. You gotta think, Herod's up there and he's looking at what's going on in the city and he's heard the Magi tell them about this baby that was to be born in Bethlehem and he is looking out at the top of his volcano and he's saying, I'm the king, I'm the one. And I better make sure that those high priests don't take my power in Jerusalem. And whatever baby, I'm going to snuff that out as quickly as possible because it's my legacy that will remain. Now, let me show you something. Go back in time with me 1,500 years from this moment. Turn with me to Genesis 25. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. 
verse 21 to 23. Take yourself out of the first century now and go back 1,500 years. Let me read this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The baby jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. And one will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger, right? So what is this story? This story is the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Many of you know that tale. If not, go back and read it tonight. It's pretty fascinating. It's a tale of two brothers, right? Where the weaker, which wasn't expected, wasn't culturally contextualized in a way that like no one, the weaker and the younger is never the one that gets the inheritance. It's never the one that gets the blessing. And it's all of a sudden becomes sort of inverted here, very similar to our gospel story. It's a tale of two brothers. The weaker, the younger, is the one who's actually prophesied to rule over the stronger, Jacob over Esau. Now, what line does Jesus come from? Jacob. Herod's father is Idumean. What does that mean? These people are known as the Edomites. Well, who's the father of the Edomites? Next text. This is the family line of Esau, father of the Edomites. Esau is the father of the Edomites. Jacob comes from the lineage of, Jesus comes from the lineage of Jacob. Herod comes from the lineage of Esau. Now I said at the very beginning that this text in verse 1 was not just to locate Jesus' birth in history during the time of King Herod. The war that begins in the womb between Jacob and Esau, all these years later, will find its climax in the struggle between the reign of Herod and the way of Jesus. And that's what this piece of art means. We read this prophecy in Numbers 24. It reads this, that a star will come out of Jacob. The scepter will rise out of Israel. Edom will be conquered. Listen, Herod may look great, but his name will not endure. That's what the prophecy comes to fulfill. I look at the injustices in the world today, and this story reminds me that like Herod, even though they seem formidable and huge and that they're winning, that those injustices will not endure. And like this art piece, do not be fooled. Herod looks great now. He's older, he's taller, and he's stronger. But Herod is a puppet king, a political imposter. In his reign, like every Caesar before him and every human tyrant after him will end. But that younger one, that one buried in the womb of the earth that's about to be born, though it may not look like it at times, he's king. He will have the last word. And so the question becomes this, on which side of the canvas does your hope lie? I think it's more of a continuum than it is like a binary. In other words, on which side of the canvas is your hope trending toward? Does it move toward insecurity and competition? Is that sort of your value of life where you live with anxiety? You live with fear? You live with a sense of like, I better hitch my wagon to where it seems like, you know, there's more power and control. Or does it move toward simplicity? Does it move toward humility? Does it move toward a very different pathway 
than what we see modeled out in culture. The way of, of the kingdom of God, the chief values are humility and simplicity. It's the worldview of surrender, of compassion, of recognizing our need for a savior, of radical generosity and making room for others. Whereas the other worlds represents the empire of man. Its chief virtues and values are insecurity and competition. It's the worldview of force, of self-determination, of scarcity, of greed, of imposing your will onto others to get your way. You're somewhere living on that continuum. Do you trend toward Bethlehem in the way you're living or do you trend toward the Herodian? Now let's make this even a bit more personal. Let's put this into the story of your life. I think there's two groups that this narrative speaks most clearly to, most profoundly to. The first is this, and it speaks, I'll put myself in this as well. It's building self. It's building self. Our individualistic age brings with it the burden of creating your own meaning, proving that you matter, right? You're on your own, so you better make your life matter. Our secular age tells us the lie that we have to achieve our identity. Herod was the product of Rome. Now, what is Rome? What's its ethic? Its ethic is this, that you are the sum value of what you can achieve. Doesn't that sound familiar? Of what you can build, of what you can manufacture. It's no wonder that anxiety and depression are at record highs in America. I mean, when this scene takes place in Matthew, Herod is not, by the way, I don't know what films you've seen. Herod is not in his prime. He's not standing strong. Herod is dying. And he's built all this magnificent stuff and he gets wind of some baby being born in some no-name town and he's insecure about it and he's scared and he's angry and he's dying of an STD. In a matter of months, he'll be dead from syphilis. So why all the fuss? Why the genocide? Why does he go mental and actually want to destroy all of... all of Bethlehem's children in an effort to snuff out this potential king because even for all the building that he has done, it's never enough. He will only be great to the extent that his name lives on through his building projects and his sons. And here comes this promised child, authentically Jewish, born in this cave. When you spend your whole life building your identity, constructing it through enviable job titles, an insatiable pursuit of money, obsessing over the latest fashion or gadget, running with the right social circles, having the perfect kids, owning the dream home. When we're driven by those instincts, you live into the builded, constructed self. And it's the Herodian side of the canvas. And when that happens, you'll know it. And here's how you'll know it. Because when the kingdom of God advances towards you, you'll begin to view it as a threat and not as a grace. Jesus threatens our constructed selves that is illusory, that we rely on to give us meaning. Don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with loving your job or enjoying your home. But when you become a slave to your success and your power and your money and your prestige, that pursuit as to what gives you dignity, you live into the way of Herod. This happens all the time. It happens to me every day. Herod is the simply, he's the extreme of the, of the temptations I face every single day of my life. 
He's just the extreme conclusion. Nowen says that pay close attention to these three lies that are constantly coming into your soul. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others think about me. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others think about me. Those are three illusions. They're so easy to, to live by. And I don't speak this as a rebuke. I speak this as a compassion. Don't waste your life like Herod wasted his, promoting self, protecting power, preserving image. I love the words of Thomas Merton. People may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they've reached the top, the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. Second group of people in the end here is this. Those of you like so many of my friends and myself included because I've been through these seasons, they're just, just at the brink of losing faith. We'll end this by addressing doubt, which is real, and cynicism, and spiritual boredom. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people I interact with today that are just like, what's the point, really? I mean, I was sort of born into this. What's the probability it's actually true? And it's just here to control my behavior, lead me to duty. There's no freedom, there's no joy here. Losing faith. If you're a betting person in the first century, and you gotta choose which holds the future, and you're looking out, and you're seeing that Bethlehem cave, and you're seeing that Herodian palace, if you're a betting person in the first century, which side of the canvas are you gonna go with? Which side of the canvas are you gonna say, well, that seems to be the way life is trending. That's the future right there, right? You're looking out your eyes, you're thinking, Caesarea Maritima, that's pretty great. You're looking out, you're seeing Masada, wow. You're seeing the new temple, wow. And you're seeing the Herodian, what a wonder. You're thinking Herod's great. Herod is great, that's a leader, that's a king. And all the power behind it is Rome. Rome is the future. What's Rome called? The what city? The eternal city, right? Its greatness will never fade. And then you got Jesus, born into poverty, raised in obscurity, died in humility. Listen, where's your faith going? What's the future? Which side of the canvas are you really going for? Except you'd be completely wrong if you put your hope only in what your eyes can see, only in the things that seem obvious. In Bethlehem, not the Herodian, God was doing something in the womb of the earth that would take the world by surprise. And listen, you sit here 2,000 years later not singing the songs of the greatness of Herod, but singing the songs about the greatness of Jesus. Joined, by the way, this morning with two billion people around the world that are singing the same songs, doing the same thing we are. Last I checked, there are no Herod churches in existence. Not one. And by the way, if you go to Rome today, the eternal city, and you walk the forum, it's a park filled with broken down buildings overrun by cats. And I'm serious. Epiphany is the time of year where you and I rekindle our hope that maybe this story is true. And maybe we didn't find it. Maybe it found us on the other side of the world. My friend and former workmate in New York, John Tyson, says this. If cynicism has crept into your heart, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus is a bit of a disappointment to me. Trust me, historically, he's doing well over all folks. Don't make your experience of Jesus the whole of the kingdom of God. Revival is happening all over the world. And it's not here, it's, it's only here in the West that the church is shrinking. In China, where it's prophesied that communism would wipe out Christians, the church is out of control. In Cuba, you're seeing an underground revival where they cannot keep up with the extraordinary miracles taking place. All over the world, the kingdom of God is advancing. In Western society, they say to me, John, don't go with solid doctrine. Don't follow Jesus. It's not happening. I actually say, you want to bet on that? Epiphany is the time of year where we cough up our cynicism and all the apathy that's descended into our hearts and we lay it at the feet of the manger. Listen, you may not have an extravagant gift to give this morning like the Magi, but here's what I can promise you. It would delight the heart of God if you would bring your cynicism and mine and lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's so much more valuable than frankincense and myrrh. And say, I'm so tired of carrying around the fruits of this culture. I want to trade it in for a bigger vision built on a story beyond myself and beyond my iPhone. Trust me, listen, I have been there. I don't come to you as some superior who doesn't understand what it means to doubt and be cynical. I'm in the same world you are. And it doesn't get easier when you have a silly little job title that says pastor. And when you let that go, when you let that cynicism go in trust and you raise your hands in praise and adoration to the King of Kings, the one lying helpless on the improbable side of the canvas, joy will flood your heart. Just 10 years ago, in 2007 at the Herodian, they discovered the tomb of Herod, which holds his body. In the great reversal, it's now Herod who is deep in the womb of the earth. You know, we think we know also where the tomb of Jesus is. Only unlike Herod, his body isn't there. He's risen. And like a king, is ascended on high, sitting enthroned at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return to fully unite the kingdom of heaven on earth. Herod isn't great. Jesus is. Herod isn't king. That title belongs to Christ alone. And against all odds, place your trust in the baby born in Bethlehem because he's coming again as an exalted king who brings good news of great joy to all people. And upon his shoulders, the government will rest and his reign will have no end. Thanks be to God.